Wonderful. Do take a seat. And at this stage, some Bibles can come round and you can see the words on the page if you'd like to. They'll also come on the screens. But we're going to read from a uh, book called Philippians. Can I have the mic just a tiny bit down? And if you'd like a Bible, we're on page 1,179. I'm not going to read it straight away. I'll uh, come to it in just a moment. But um, it's, uh, it's there ready to go, page 1,179. But first, let me see if I can hook you into this talk a little bit um, by talking about Time magazine. Time magazine picked up on a trend this week um, on social media or this past couple of weeks. And the trend is that uh, women have been recording their boyfriends, husbands, whatever. And uh, on the videos, they've been asking their boyfriend or their husband how often they think about... The Roman Empire. (laughs) And uh, apparently, if these videos are to be believed, and you know, the internet doesn't always tell the truth, American men, particularly, because this was mostly, I think, happening in the States, were sharing, get this, that they think about the Roman Empire often, perhaps three to four times a month. Some reported daily thinking about the Roman Empire. Empire and hashtag Roman Empire last uh, September 15th, last Friday, was viewed 893 million times. Now, the article in Time magazine was written by a historian called Tom Holland, who um, is an expert on all things Roman, and he said it was this. He said that he thought the fascination was to do with the fact that Rome, ancient Rome, was the apex predator, these are his words, and this is a quote, the apex predator of antiquity, powerful, terrifying, and box office. He said, it's a fascination with power. And he goes on, he makes this really interesting point in the article, he said, you know, it would be an utter crank who wanted to talk about and esteem the, uh, the Nazis or Nazi Germany and its power, But Rome and the Roman Empire is sufficiently far removed in time for us to be sort of allured, for us to sort of glamour about its architecture, military strength, its conquests and all of its power and its Caesars. Even though Julius Caesar, on one occasion, he went to Gaul, which is modern France, Uh, killed a million people and enslaved another million. That's the kind of thing that the Caesars did. That's the kind of thing that Julius Caesar did. And um, the reason, there is a reason, by the way, why I'm boring, boring you with a history lesson, is because I want you to see that the Bible reading I'm going to read in just a second is spoken into that world, the Roman world, the world of the Roman Empire. Remember that Jesus, when he moved in Nazareth and Jerusalem and around ancient Israel, that was occupied by the Roman Empire. 
and the, Ro and the influence of the Roman Empire was uh, around the whole of the known world. And into that world of Rome and all its might and its power comes probably a passage in the Bible that is one of the most studied passages. Let me just set this up. I felt a bit burdened by this particular sermon uh, this morning because this passage is so glorious. If you go to um, Bible college, if you study theology, this is one of the passages you will study. If not first or very high up on the list, um, it'll be somewhere. If you want to understand what the New Testament says about Jesus, you'll come to this passage at some stage because it's massive. So I'm going to try and do it some justice this morning, but it's huge. And it's countercultural today because it's going to talk about humility. The main subject matter of this talk and this particular Bible passage is humility. And that's going to be unusual for us, for us in an age of selfies, self-interest, self-promotion, self-identification, self-everything. Think about this with me just for a moment. Nearly every decision you make, what do people say to you? Just before you're on the cusp of a decision to make, usually quite big ones. They'll say to you, right, They'll say, do what's right for you. Do what makes you happy. Do what works for you. No one, nearly no one says, um, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you make a decision that makes your spouse happy or even your children or maybe friends or relatives or maybe your elderly relative. Why not do what makes them happy? No, no one, no one speaks like that. Now, not that I've heard anyway. It's just absolutely bog-standard, common chat. You need to make the decision here in front of you right now that puts you center stage, your happiness, your fulfillment. No one questions that kind of thinking for a second. But the Bible does. The Bible talks up humility which in essence is counting others more highly than yourself. But it's so alien. It's so weird to hear that kind of chat today. No one talks like that. But if no one talks like that now, no one talked like that back then in the Roman world where... To be free in Rome, to be a free person in Rome, was to exert maximum power on others. Maximum influence, maximum control, maximum self-agency. Yes, over slaves, because they had slaves, but over everyone. And the more power and more control you had, the more free you are. Right? That was freedom in the Roman world, and it came from the top all the way down. So it was weird... Then, to talk about humility, it's weird now. Um, but the Bible does, and we're going to do the first three verses. So can we put those on the screen? So I'm just going to read the first three verses. We're not getting... The, the second section is the, is the really huge bit, but this is the setup. Okay, this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the Philippian church, and he says this. 
Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, being a Christian, if any comfort from his love, Jesus' love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, here it comes. Check this out. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You could translate that glory-seeking. Glory-seeking. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Stop there. That is mad, isn't it? No one talks like that. No one. But this is a cornerstone of Christian discipleship. Humility. Not considering less of yourself, by the way. Let's just make this point. Not considering less of yourself, but considering yourself less in favor of others. Now, that's an important distinction. Can I just stress that just at this moment? Because that's an important thing to say. The passage isn't asking us to have low self-esteem or to be self-loathing or to have a lack of self-worth. It's just considering yourself less and particularly in the light of others. A little thing that's just helped me think about this. Imagine you're an athlete. Some of you might be athletes. I don't know. You like running races. I think there is. Isn't there a South South End 10K this morning? Something like that. So there is a race happening today somewhere. Uh, Let's say you're a passionate athlete. You love, you love sport. You love the drama of a race and the spectacle of a race. You love to see what the human body is capable of, you know, at max, max fitness, max endurance, all that sort of thing. Oh, the single-minded focus of an athlete. All of that is just amazing to you. Now, if you're also a runner and an athlete yourself, pride, here's a distinction, pride will, yes, love what you do, love bettering yourself, pursuing faster run times, etc., but will be bitterly disappointed and crushed when you lose because you have to win because it's all about you humility will love what you do love bettering yourself love pursuing faster run times but be satisfied and content even when you lose because it's not all about you See the difference? You can still be pursuing the things you love and the things that bring you great joy and the things that enthrall you and make you live. But it won't all be about you when we're humble. So it's not self-loathing. Can I just stress that? Humility is not about self-loathing or being less passionate about performance, taking no interest in yourself and your goals, but you're thinking less about yourself because you're thinking about others. Now, how do you get this? This is an interesting question, right? Just follow me with this just for a second. How do you get 
humility. Let's just say for a moment, it probably is quite a good quality to be slightly less self-obsessed. How do you get that? Because if you try and work on humility directly, if you try and be humble, right, what you're probably doing is just trying to act more humble. Am I right? You know, if you try, if you say to yourself, right, I'm going to be really, really humble tomorrow when I go to work Monday morning, the chances are you're just going to act. You're just going to pretend to be more humble rather than actually becoming more humble. You think about this with your own kids. The first time (laughs) your kids or uh, your children or maybe your grandchildren or godchildren turn around and say to you something like, I don't know, why? Why should I do what you've got? To, why, why should I do the dishes? Why should I go and clean my room? Or what, who are you? What are you telling me to do that for? Or whatever, something like that. Is the day you realise that humility is actually quite a lovely thing and you want it genuinely in your children. Not just like uh, pretending to do the right thing, but actually a genuine, oh yeah, yeah, I'll do what I need to do, that's fine. A genuine sense of humility. Now one way, one way you know, one way we all know you can get humility is with a slice of humble pie, right? Here's one way to get humility, and that is usually quite a negative experience. Uh, A humiliation something that kind of dresses you down, you face some music, and that way, there's like an intervention in your life which helps realize, oh, hang on, I'm not the god or goddess that I thought I was. But the only problem with negative experiences are, like when you've been found out or you've realized you've done something or whatever, the only problem is that can harden hearts as well as soften hearts. So yeah, a negative experience can produce a change of heart, but it can also produce more pride, uh, more belligerence, hardness of heart. Isn't there a more positive way? Isn't there a more positive way to do this? Let me read you these next uh, seven verses or so. This is the text that is so ground-shaking. Verse five. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset. So he's talking about humility, remember? Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who, this is Jesus now, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, one other way, one other way that you, you can become a little bit more humble is to behold greatness. You know this. When you stand in front of a mountain or a waterfall, or you, I don't know, if you look up at the galaxies and the stars, or maybe if you look at a newborn baby, you know, when you, when you behold greatness, magnificence, something just almost miraculous, it does something to you. It does humble you. Those experiences, it makes you want to live for something else, something bigger. What you're catching there is just a, it's a taste. Like when you stand in front of a, a mountaintop or whatever, or a vast valley, Grand Canyon, whatever, you're getting a sense of this, like a, something magnificent, something enthralling, something utterly captivating. That does something to you. But here's the thing. Mountains, newborn babies, they can all do that. But I want to contend with you this morning that there is nothing, nothing that can compete with what we've just read. If it's true, if what we've just read is true, nothing competes with that. Nothing touches Jesus. Nothing competes with this if it's true. Because what it says is that God, the eternal, uncreated giver of life who makes and sustains everything to whom all of heaven and earth owes its existence took a decision to stoop very low. That's what we're seeing when we look at Jesus. It's mind-blowing. It actually breaks into seven steps. Let me take you down the seven steps. This is what Jesus did. The God of all glory. This is what he did, seven steps down. Number one, he humbled himself. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Verse six, he turned down all of his privilege and majesty. All of his privilege. He rejected that. So, so when Jesus, think about this, when Jesus walked on the earth, he didn't shine. It wasn't obvious. He was the God who created everything and he didn't, it wasn't obvious. He just walked around like you, like me. It says in one verse in the Bible, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him and we esteemed him not. He completely rejected and turned away all of his privilege. Number two, he took the nature of a servant. This is verse seven. Literally, the word there, see that second line, taking the very nature of a servant, the word there is slave. Right, think of the Roman Empire. Jesus took the nature of a slave. And you see that so beautifully when he washes his disciples' feet. That's what slaves do. That's what God did. Is that true? If that is true, that God did that, that's already ridiculous. That God washes human beings' feet. Number three, made in human likeness, verse seven, though he was fully God, he becomes 
fully human. He takes on the frailty and fragility of a human body. He could break his legs. He could bleed. He could get tired, hungry, lonely. All those things. He was made in human likeness. Number four, he humbled himself further. Number five, he became obedient. That's what it says. Third line down. He became obedient. God did. Laying down his prerogative. He had every right to rule and reign as king. Kings don't obey. They give out the orders. Jesus became obedient. Became a subject. Six, he became obedient to death. All the way. He would stop at nothing in his obedience. Even if it means I've got to die. This is God we're talking about. Does that not blow your mind? He became obedient to death. And then finally, seven, even death. See that? It says even death on a cross. Do you know why it says even death on a cross? It's because Jesus subjected himself to the apex predator of antiquity, the Roman crucifixion. So Jesus looked down, can you imagine this, at one of the most violent, despicable, brutal, bloody regimes that the world has ever known, the Roman Empire. And he subjected himself to a Roman cross, to that. That is nuts. It would be like coming to Hitler's Germany. Like that's the sort of more modern day equivalent. I'll subject myself to the most horrific regime and die at their hands. That is crazy. God subjects himself to that. God did that. That is what we're looking at when we look at Jesus. You thought about that? Isn't that crazy? God humbled himself to that extent. Now, if you want an example of greatness, if you want to see greatness, look no further. Is there anything, is there anything that can touch that? Anything. Can you ever get close? A challenge. Every worldview and every major world religion to see if you can get close. You haven't got a patch on Jesus. Not a patch. Who was prepared to humble himself to that extent. And if you need something this morning to be utterly enthralled by, to find completely unthinkably magnificent, look no further. How about that? How about that? Only something this great can produce genuine humility. Only when you look at something like that do you go, oh my goodness. 
There is something in this world a little bit more meaningful to live for than me. Isn't there? Do you know, I just want to finish with a final thought. It's a pity you can't see this in the Bible. The screens don't show it very well. But I don't know if you can see there. That's what we've just read. It's kind of indented on the page because it's a hymn. It's a song. The Christians, they didn't only say these words, they sung these words. Very, super early. Very soon after the death and resurrection of Jesus, they sang this. Now let me ask you a question. This is just something to ponder. Have you got something so great in your life, so precious, that you sing it? You sing about it. Let me ask parents. This is a good test. Here's a good test. Parents, grandparents, godparents, uncles, aunties, ask yourself this. Have you got a song to sing over your kids that isn't a pop song, a nursery rhyme, or a football chant. That is glorious. You got something to sing over the lives of your children that is actually glorious? That isn't Old MacDonald or songs about referees? Have you got something? So good, so magnificent, that you sing your kids to sleep with the magnificence of it. You got something to sing over your children's lives? You got something to sing over your own life? That good. No one has done what Jesus has done. No one. Which is why he's worth living and dying for. And when you've got something that big in the center of your life, you might just find, almost as a side effect now, almost as like a a side effect that it produces in your heart, genuine humility, that genuine humility and a love for others and a love for him can really grow. Let me pray. And then we'll close. Lord Jesus, the mind boggles when we think about you and what you've done. The God of all glory stooped so low, even right down onto a Roman cross. Fill our hearts, Lord God, this morning with uh, something great as we stare at you, Lord Jesus, that will carry us through today and the rest of our lives, that will give us a purpose and a meaning for our children and grandchildren and those we know and love, and set our hearts on fire with mission and purpose and something to live and die for. Lord God, we pray for this. And ask you to do it. Show us more of yourself that we might become enthralled every day with greatness as we stare at you. And I pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. We'll invite the, we will sing. I'll invite the band uh, back up to join me. Can I just repeat, though, as the band come back up, if you want to think about these things, if you want to think about baptism, if you want to cross the line and say, actually, yeah, this is me. I want to be in those waters. I want to confess Christ. I want him to be my Lord and my Savior. We are baptizing here on the 22nd of October. Please come and speak to me about that. If you want to think about these things more, don't let it drop after today. Pick up an Alpha flyer at the back. Talk to us about Alpha. Come and think through these things together over some food. Alpha starts on the 4th of October. Start with that course. Start with being baptized. Don't leave it for another day. Do it today. Let's sing. Shall we stand together and sing a final song?